All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right, today we're going to talk about housing and education funding. And to walk us through this, we have the founder and CEO of EdBuild, Rebecca Sibilia. EdBuild's mission is to bring fairness to the way that we fund public schools. And EdBuild just released a report, got huge national attention and deservedly so, uh, which basically said the way that we fund public schools is whack. Uh, Specifically, uh, in 2016, overwhelmingly white school districts received $23 more than predominantly non-white school districts in state and local funding, despite serving the same number of children. And a lot of this is rooted in housing policy, and we're going to talk a lot about this in the podcast. Prior to starting EdBuild, Rebecca served as the COO and VP of Fiscal Strategy at Students First, where she led a team in analyzing pure pupil funding levels and state funding mechanisms for schools. And they made recommendations to state and district officials on how to more equitably fund schools. And prior to her work at Students First, she served as the chief financial officer for the D.C. office of the state superintendent of education, where she oversaw the investment of more than one billion in local, state and federal student funding. She's held several state and local education policy roles, developed philanthropy programs to serve low-income kids, and and much more. Uh, She went to Clemson, which, as a Notre Dame guy, I'm still upset about the Cotton Bowl, uh, where we got our butts beat really bad by Clemson. I think it was 30 to 3, but we won't hold that against you. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Excited to have you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for for coming. Um, So let's just kind of start with, uh, you know, you explaining your organization of EdBuild and what it is that you do every day. Yeah, so... uh, so I'm lucky to have the staff that I've got at EdBuild. So, um, so I, you know, it's a privilege to go to work every day. Yeah. Um, we uh, launched in 2014, late 2014, um, with a specific focus on the state as kind of the lever of change for mm-hmm. the way that we're funding schools. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of other folks who are doing really great work on the distribution of money once it gets to a school district yeah. to make sure it's getting to the right schools. Um, but from our perspective, we need to start with the state because yeah. it really is the state that's responsible for all of this. Yeah, if you don't get that right, it's hard to fix it at the district it, level. It, that's exactly yeah. right. And, you know, we'll get into constitutions and yeah. all of that stuff later. Um, but but we focus on the state. And so um, our sole mission is to make state funding, um, you know, uh, make more sense. I mean, more sensible and really importantly, fairer. Um, and so we have two work streams. Um, the first is our national voice. That's the big reports that we release you know, about once a year mm-hmm. to really draw attention to some of the inequities in the way we're funding schools. But we also have the softer side of our work where mm-hmm. we work directly with legislatures okay. um, to see if we can, you know, move some state funding toward a, a fairer system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's what I get to do every day. 
Sounds it's fun. fun. It yeah. is fun. Yeah. yeah. So what, personally, what motivates you to do this work? You talked, we talked a little bit before we started recording about, so, you know, your non-traditional sort of career background. And so just interested uh, in what personally motivates you to do this work every day. Yeah, I mean, well, when I was, it starts when, with when I was CFO for uh, the Office of the State Superintendent. I mean, that was my first grounding in exactly how really messed up yeah. the way that we fund schools yeah. is. And one of the things that I think is really important to understand about this dynamic is um, that the lowest income areas in our country are most dependent on higher governing funding, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so when when local school districts can't raise enough money from their local property taxes, they rely on the state to make up the difference. Fill the gap, yeah. And yeah. states do a terrible job of that to begin with. Um, but usually that money comes with strings, mm-hmm. right? Because state legislatures invariably believe that they know how to run schools, well, of course, right? Yeah. So, uh, so, th- so that money comes with strings. And then they're also reliant on federal dollars that are intended to kind of help bolster low-income communities and particularly schools in low-income communities. And all of that money comes with strings. Mm -hmm. So it really is the lowest-income communities that are being forced into running schools in a crazy way. Um, and I saw a lot of that here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things I said is, like, we need to fix this. Yeah. And this is solvable. Yeah. So let's put together an organization that does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was really kind of why EdBuilt came to be. Um, and I think, you know, we really started to develop the kind of consulting side of our work when we saw legislators that were actually getting excited about the work that we were doing. Either excited or shamed, yeah, frankly, right? right? right yeah. um, and so some of them would say, look, we're the worst state in the country. How do we do this better? So we started getting calls from legislators and advocates mm-hmm. um, and realized that we had to build out the capacity to not just talk about the problem, but see if we can't drive to some solutions. Mm-hmm. And so personally, you wake up every morning and you want to fix the system for the most vulnerable kids. And that's Absolutely. what gets you going. Yeah. There are 12.8 million kids that are living in uh, racially concentrated uh, non-white school districts. Those are the kids that drive me to work every day. There are 9 million kids that are living below the poverty line in the United States. Those are the kids that drive me to work every day. And if we can just make a change for just a couple of these school districts, it would have magnified effects in terms of kind of what our society will, will look like. Yeah. So we'll get, this is actually a a good segue. I mean, we'll get to the kind of the intersection of housing policy in a little bit, but first I wanted to just kind of establish a baseline about the school situation. So the majority, as you alluded to, the majority of America's kids still attend racially concentrated school systems. So the- Crazy, right? Crazy, yeah. So the the numbers that you cite in the report, 27% of students are enrolled in predominantly non-white districts and then vice versa, 26% 26% of students are enrolled in predominantly white districts. So 26 plus 27 is 50-something. So the majority of America's kids are still in racially concentrated schools where 65 years after Brown versus Board, and this is still the state of play in America today. So there's a couple of things to, to understand about what happened after Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing is that one of the things that we find consistently is that the southern states actually have more equity across school district mm. borders than the northern states do, yeah. uh, which kind of flies in, you know. Yeah, that would surprise uh, a lot of people. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and one of the reasons for that equity is that southern states arrange themselves by county. Mm. And so it's a much larger taxing jurisdiction. Yeah. Right after Brown, we did a good job of desegregating a lot of schools in the South. Yep, progress really all across the country. Really across the country. But we were knocking on the door in some of the northern states and couldn't get there. Yeah. The reason we couldn't get there is because of two Supreme Court rulings that came after Brown. And this was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, Some folks have heard about San Antonio v. Rodriguez. That was a court case that came out of the San Antonio area where, you know, some the litigants basically said that if we fund schools based on property taxes, um, we're going to continue to have a very inequitable system. Right. Um, and so uh, that made it its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled two really important things there. 
The first is that low-income folks are not a protected class. So if something is disproportionately affecting just low-income folks, that is not something that the Supreme Court needs to apply what they call strict scrutiny to. Um, That was the first time that they really said, and that was very, very important. Mm -hmm. The second thing that they said, which was crazy, is that education is not a right bestowed to all students uh, under the federal constitution. Yeah, yeah. The word education does not appear in the Constitution. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so what happened as a result of those kind of two pieces that came out um, of that court court case is that there really is no more role for the federal government in ensuring that all kids get to learn. Yep. Um, So... That unravels a lot of brown, right? Right, right. So that's that's the first thing. And then the second court case that is so incredibly important in terms of not just school funding, but also housing policy, mm-hmm. uh, was Milliken yeah. v. Rodriguez. Or, sorry. Yeah, Milliken Bradley. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, back to Constitutional Law 101 <laughs> and, and undergrad. So, yeah. It was Milliken v. Bradley. Yep. And... It's a really sad story. There, there was a woman named uh, Verna Bradley who moved from Jim Crow South to Detroit mm-hmm. um, because that was in you know in the forties and fifties really kind of where the communities uh, you know particularly non-white communities were flourishing up yeah. in, in the Rust Belt. Um, and so she moved out of Jim Crow to Detroit, and be- between the time that she moved there, the nineteen forties and the nineteen seventies, Detroit public schools went from about ten percent non-white to over 70% non-white. And so she had two children, and she was like, I moved from the South to the North to get them to integrated schools, right? So the fact that they can't get to integrated schools is crazy. So she sued the governor Mm -hmm. because she was a badass, right? Um, And... Um, and basically, the um, the federal courts um, came up with a desegregation plan. They they sided with with her. Mm-hmm. They came up with a desegregation plan that would have bused kids in and out of over fifty school districts near Detroit. Because mm-hmm. there are fifty. Because there are fifty. Yeah. Why would there be fifty school districts? With right? busing, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, the governor obviously didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So he countersued her. So we got to the Supreme Court, and like this is how crazy this is. The actual court case as it was filed was Governor Milliken versus Frida Bradley. Yeah, the mom. The yeah. governor was suing the mom yeah. to keep her kids out of the suburb yep. schools. In the north. In the north. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, the Supreme Court, this was, this was a very unfortunate decision. Mm-hmm. What they said was that if there is a line drawn anywhere for any reason, the federal courts don't have the right to mandate desegregation across that line. So what that did is it bolstered the use of school district borders to segregate along racial lines. When we started using school district borders to segregate along racial lines, it started to widen the gap in Mm -hmm. terms of the amount of money that was available for, for schools. It completely unraveled Brown, um, and and that's why we we are faced and with a situation right now where you know over half of kids in in, in the country, almost uh, twenty five million kids, are going to school in racially concentrated school districts. Yeah, it's really shocking. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So today, I mean, it's the case that you know three fourths of all kids in this country are attending school based on where they live right? Their zip code, whatever you want to call it. They're attending school mandatorily based on the neighborhood in which they live. So if you have segregated neighborhoods, you will therefore have segregated schools. So the housing segregation, of course, is is sort of the, the underlying context throughout all of this. Um, but then school districts aren't innocent either, as you mentioned, right? That they also are sort of gerrymandering these attendance boundaries so that kids from different backgrounds aren't going to attend the same school. So you have this underlying thing of housing segregation that is pervasive through it all. And then on top of that, to make matters even worse, you have school systems coming in and drawing all sorts of squiggly lines to make sure that kids from different backgrounds don't attend school together. Yeah, and this is when I actually get to um, uh, be really hard on my home state of New Jersey. I, 
I am a Jersey girl, and I did go to Clemson, so right. there you go. Well, I'm a Springsteen fan, so. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, Springsteen and Sinatra, that's what we're Yep, there you go. Um, which is not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Um, so uh, so here's, here's kind of, we're thinking about the South versus the North, to the extent to which we consider Maryland the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In New Jersey, we do. Yeah, in right. the South, they do, yeah. right? Um, there are 800,000 kids in the state of Maryland that attend public schools, and they're sorted into 24 school districts. Mm-hmm. There are about a million, just over a million kids in New Jersey. They're sorted into 600 school districts. Wild. So this gives you a sense of how these northern states and some of the states in the west have used school district borders in the shadow of Milliken yeah. to create the kind of intentional segregation that was really happening in the South too, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, so you know, yes, school districts are very complicit in terms of ensuring that folks that are coming from non-white backgrounds aren't attending school with mm-hmm. folks who are wealthy and white, yeah. bottom line. Yeah. You know, and, and in fact, Kelly Williams knows as well. Mm-hmm. So Kelly Williams was a parent um, in Akron, Ohio, who falsified her address to get her daughters yeah. into a better school system. And the school system sued her. Right. And um, and she was sentenced to five, two concurrent sentencings, five years yep. each. Yep. And um, what the school officials said, and, and this is a direct quote, and it is so sad, is that she was cheating because her daughters received a quality education that was not rightfully theirs. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah, so and the I, sentence itself is worse than some of these high-profile, really egregious things that we see happening in the news every day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that is. I mean, just what what a shocking thing to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let so okay. So segregation is pervasive. I want to. I mean, this is quasi rhetorical. I mean, we all sort of know the answer, but I want I want to kind of hear your take on it, which is why is this problematic, right? Like why does it matter who you go to school with, right? Like why can't we just make separate more equal? Uh, and you know, this notion that white folks have uh, and I can say that because I am a white woman. Um, this notion that white folks have that their kids can't learn from a non-white student is crazy. Yeah. I mean, the kind of the the kind of exposure that white kids can get to students that are coming from a different ethnic background will make them much better rounded citizens. Yeah. Later. I mean, that is that is right. you know factual, but it, what. What was really happening with desegregation was not necessarily the idea that students of different races should be learning together. I mean, they should certainly should. Yeah. And the doll test. I mean, yeah. if your listeners haven't yeah. seen the doll test, it is um, incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, uh, um, but but you know, uh, uh, rubbing elbows is not going to necessarily increase the academic you know uh, mm-hmm. proficiency of of students that are coming from lower income um, households, what it was doing is it was getting folks from lower income households to the schools that had the most money. That's what made the difference. That's what desegregation did for kids who were coming from non-white, low-income backgrounds. So, you know, I, yeah. and, 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 you know, coming from a white woman, right, I'm not sure that I can really say what the benefits of an integrated school are, other than I would want my kids to go to school with folks of different ethnicities and from different, you know, socioeconomic right. backgrounds. I think non-white folks can much better tell you, you know, what their students would benefit from it. Um, but what I can say is that um, certainly when we bring low-income and non-white students to white areas, they have access to better schools because they're better funded. That makes a difference. I think, you know, we, we talk to folks all the time who say, you know, if we could get to equal, mm-hmm. maybe separate is not so bad, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, let's say new immigrant communities would want to govern their own schools because they feel like they are getting left behind with a big school board. Maybe they should have the right to do that. But until we fix income inequality and wealth inequality mm-hmm. in our country, we can never get to the question of, can we actually run racially concentrated districts? 
Um, and so, so that's one of the reasons why we wanted to kind of raise awareness. So let's let's talk more about this funding piece, the twenty three billion dollar number. Um, so again, to repeat for the listeners, predominantly white districts get twenty three billion dollars more in funding than predominantly non-white districts. Um, so we fund schools based on local property taxes. And so when you have these segregated areas of concentrated poverty, which is due, like you said, to just basically centuries of, of racism and, and you know people living in these areas are disproportionately people of color. So their property wealth is lower, which means that they, can ge- they can't generate as much money for their schools and then vice versa. You have these segregated islands of wealthy people, um, which is also due to a legacy of racism and discrimination. And they can, uh, because of their high property wealth, they can generate pretty enormous amounts of money for their schools. So I'm curious uh, if you could kind of talk our listeners through how you uh, developed this report and kind of, without getting too wonky about the methodology, like how did you arrive at the $23 billion number? Because, I mean, that that is just incredibly stark. It, this is really simple math. I mean, this is, <laughs> we took the school districts where uh, 75% or more of the students are either white or non-white. Okay. And so we called them racially concentrated. Concentrated districts. districts. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is all willy-nilly numbers. But from our perspective, once you hit 75%, you cannot meaningfully integrate. Right. Um, and so uh, so that's that's why we, we kind of created that cutoff. Yeah, yeah. We counted up the number of kids that were in racially concentrated districts that were non-white, mm-hmm. counted up the number of kids in racially concentrated districts that were white, took the total amount of money that each you know set of districts mm-hmm. was getting, divided by the total number of, of students, and, and that's where you get the $23 billion difference. Mm. So is that simple? It is It is <laughs> yeah. really simple, yeah. 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 Um, National Center for Education Statistics puts this stuff out every year. Mm-hmm. The important thing that I think, you know, we can do is that we can dive one step deeper because we do have geographic Mm. um, uh, and, and, you know, kind of like a mapping look at the world as well. Um, My director of data and visualizations is an amazing person when it comes to putting together maps that are visually stunning. Um, And so we can build algorithms to really look at how these funding um, gaps actually relate to neighbors or regional areas. Okay. And that's what we're doing kind of as a follow-up to the $23 billion report. But, yeah, simple. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. And yet, I mean, I we were talking about this again before the, the podcast, before we started recording. But, I mean, just the amount of shares that this had on social media. I mean, everywhere you looked, it was this $23 billion number was all over social media. For, not from people who, like talk about this stuff every day, but from really unusual suspects of folks who don't always talk about this issue, and they were tweeting it out. You yeah. mentioned Don Cheadle yes. tweeted it out. I mean, it was just everywhere. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo, too. There you go. I looked at our staff, and I was like, guys, we have War Machine and the whole <laughs> Avengers go. on our yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, no, I, it crashed our website the first day, and we really didn't expect that. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough to have an awesome developer on staff, yeah. so I called him at, like, 9 o'clock. It was like, our website crashed. She's like, okay, let me fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's a good, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the funding gap is a terrible problem right, to have. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, so I mean, all of this is is shameful, frankly. Right. Um, I want to I want to talk to you about this this notion of local control, which you talk about in your your report. Um, we have this long-standing notion of local control. You know, the history of our education system is sort of rooted in this idea of localism. And, you know, back in the day, it was neighborhood adults taught, you know, students in very small communities. It was the one-room uh, schoolhouse sort of thing. Uh, neighborhoods sort of built themselves around schoolhouses. Um, and, you know, having worked at a school district myself, you know, nobody really, at least at least my pr- perspective of it was that nobody really questioned the wisdom of local control, right? It was just sort of the way that it is. And it was actually a fairly popular talking point at times, particularly in Texas when the state was doing some counterproductive things. Yeah. We could always say local control, local control, and it was it was pop- uh, popular. Um, and, it, and there's some good aspects to local control, but it leads to these really bad inequities too. Um, you know, basically ensures an uneven distribution of wealth. Um, so I want to just ask you about your thoughts around this this local control notion 
question. I mean, is it outdated? Is it redeemable? Do we just need to sort of rethink it for modern day? Where do you kind of stand on that? Yeah, I mean, it's super simple. We rethink it. Yeah, yeah. Convincing all of society to rethink it is a different right. issue, right? But here's here's the deal. And, and so first of all, local control is really kind of a phrase that is very particularly focused on education, right? Yes. I mean, if you, if yeah. you could just Google local control, it always what pops you're going to get yeah. is education. Yeah, you don't hear it in the housing world. Not yeah. very often, yeah. right? Um, and so, so this is kind of a term that I think popped up following Brown, frankly. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the problem. We have somehow conflated two very different ideas into this one phrase. One part of local control is the ability to govern your own schools. Mm-hmm. So elect your own school board, right. decide on your own curriculum, you know, go to church with your teachers. I mean, that's yeah. all stuff that you know makes you feel very warm about mm-hmm. education. And then the second side of local control is the ability to keep all of your wealth. There is literally no reason. Those are two completely separate concepts. They've been rolled together into Mm -hmm. this one phrase, Mm -hmm. right? So what we need to do is come up with a different phrase, locally governed schools or Mm -hmm. locally run schools. Mm -hmm. And so we struggle with this all the time to talk about the idea of expanding tax bases. Yeah. And separating the way the tax policy mm-hmm. from the school school governance. Yeah, policy, it's separating right? governance and tax exactly. policy basically. Because yeah. those two things mm-hmm. don't go together. No, they don't. They don't. Yeah. Um, they. I mean, they do now, but they shouldn't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't get to send just my state taxes to my particular library. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. I'm sending my state taxes, yep. and part of that's going to all libraries that's in the right. state. Right. Yep. I mean, it, you know, I don't get to set aside my federal funding for Medicare and just send mm-hmm. it to my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. It goes so into a pool, there and it's is literally up. nowhere else yeah. where we believe that we have the ability to keep our money for just the thing that benefits us, mm-hmm. except in education. Except in education. Yeah. What percent of of all school funding is local? 50%. 50%. So it's huge, right? Huge. Yeah. And then the state percentage is what? Like 30? 50%. Yeah. And I then mean, federal is like, like a tiny, yes. tiny, tiny yes, little yes. stream. I mean, it yeah. means a lot to to the districts that get a lot of the federal dollars. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, it's tricky because it comes with lots of strings for how to spend it. Right, right, so. right. So let's let's talk about uh, the, you know, the, the state the state role here. Um, you know, we, we have these funding inequities. They're largely rooted in local property taxes. And the response from the courts basically has been, you know, we're not going to touch the local control issue. We're not going to touch gerrymandering. We're certainly not going to touch housing segregation. Um, so instead, let's just have states sort of fill the financial gaps that are created by all of these pernicious lines. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it seems like a Band-Aid on an open heart wound. But give us a sense of you know, whether states have done a, have, have some states done a good job at this? I mean, the fact that we have a $23 billion yeah, cap yeah, probably right. tells you that the state isn't doing a great job. Yeah. I mean, look, here's the problem. So, you know, coming off of Milliken, what did happen in the 70s is that there was, there was a whole lot of litigation. Almost every state had litigation around school funding inequities mm-hmm. because education is... Um, a, a right that's bestowed to state residents. So almost yeah. all constitutions at the state level um, do have a right to an education. So it was it that's that's really where advocates could kind of take this argument, right? Mm-hmm. Once the federal government was like, "Yeah, not our problem." Yeah, right. um, and so in almost all of these rulings, what the court said was not fix the problem. They said fix the difference. Yeah, and like. It wasn't make sure it's equitable. It was just do an okay job. Yeah, put a Band-Aid right? on it. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and so, like, get it to a point where these communities, you know, yeah. uh, are within 20, 30, 40 percent, right? right? Yeah. Get um, it to a point where nobody will really notice. It, <laughs> yeah. No one will notice yeah. and no one will throw a fit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, so what's been happening, and I, I think, I do think, you know, I, I work with legislators, I need to give them some props here. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they, they, the state does try in a lot of circumstances to make up the difference. Yeah. Um, but there are two problematic issues. The first is 
the idea of capping the amount of money that local communities can raise, right? In order to create equity, you have to fill up the cup, but yeah. you can't. You have to make sure no one else gets a bigger cup, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's a really hard thing to think about, yeah. telling a community that they can raise no more than right. you know, X right. amount from their property yeah. taxes. And in fact, it runs against um, school funding in a lot of circumstances. So uh, Oklahoma, for instance, does have a cap, mm. and the state fills in the rest, right? Um, now, there's all kinds of workarounds on that, too. Sure. People who happen to live on top of oil get a whole lot of money for mm. their school districts because they get to keep all that money. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, what we saw, what we've seen over the past ten years, is that there's been a series of tax cuts at the state level. So the state money in Oklahoma is going down. All of the local folks are at their tax cap, mm-hmm. so there becomes an adequacy problem. Yeah, right. Um, and that's you why can't fill up enough cups. Yeah, yeah. And that's why Texas is up recruiting teachers from Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Like they yeah. set up tables outside of schools to recruit these teachers because they've got $30,000 higher uh, starting salary. Right. Um, And so the idea of capping local wealth can really work to our disadvantage in terms of adequately funding our schools. Right. Um, You know, there are a couple of really interesting models. So uh, Vermont has a really cool model where they've got a flat property tax and the state collects all of it. They determine how much each school district should get. Okay. They send that money back to them. And then they say that local folks can raise up to 25% more. Okay. And if the local folks choose to raise more than 25%, they can keep a part of that, but they have to pay a part of it back to the state who can redistribute it to areas that don't have that kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. So what the state basically did is they said, if, if kids are within 25% of each other, that's an equitable system, Good enough. right? Yeah, yeah. And what's unfortunate is that it actually is compared to the policies of, of you know, most other states in the yeah, country. Yeah. So. so this is, you know, it, this is not just about poor and wealthy. This is also about race, too, right? And you have to have the race conversation here. So I want to uh, highlight a particular uh, statistic from the report, which is that poor white school districts receive about $150 less per student than the national average, right? And that's that's not good. So poor white school districts are receiving $150 less per student than the national average. That's not good. But when you compare poor white districts to poor non-white districts, there really is no comparison. So the poor white districts are still receiving nearly $1,500 more per pupil than poor non-white school districts. So this is very much about race, right? Yes. And here's the problem. Yeah. Um, you have de jure segregation, which is a government policy that specifically is intended to disadvantage folks of, of color. Mm-hmm. Or you have de facto segregation, which is just by merit of where people live or yeah. where people work or whatever. Um, that there is kind of a disparate impact, right, um, of how they engage with society. This kind of sits right in the middle um, because it is a funding formula that inherently is biasing against non-white communities. Why don't we fund for race? Why don't we say that state funding should go in equal amounts to non-white students? We use... We use income as a proxy for race, um, and the state feels like that's fine, right? I mean, you know, and and I don't want to get into an argument of, like, rural districts versus urban districts Mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff. But but in some cases, this is about um, who legislatures think it's palatable to increase funding for. Yeah. So in almost all states, rural districts get a significant bump mm-hmm. in terms of how much money they're getting. And rightfully so. I mean, their tra- transportation costs are a nightmare. Yeah. Um, they need to pay teachers more to keep them there. Um, you know, diseconomies of scale, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But no metropolitan area gets more money. And, uh, and metropolitan 
school districts have increased costs, particularly around salaries that they have to pay folks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why is that? Yeah. Well, because most of our non-white folks are living in, um, you know, metro areas, urban areas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and most of our white folks are living in rural areas. And so that's one of the things that basically where you see a funding formula that is intended to adjust, you know, address cost differentials in mm-hmm. one area but not another, yeah. you have to ask yourself the question of, is that government-sanctioned discriminatory behavior? Um, I would argue that it is, but it, it kind of sits right in the middle. So let's uh, let's talk housing uh, for a minute. So this is a podcast all about how housing impacts these other sectors, um, and so you know, at its basic core, it seems like most of what we're talking about here is fundamentally a housing problem. And I, am I inflating that just because I'm a housing advocate, or this seems at its very core to be at a housing its very problem? Very core. I mean, until we get to a place where we don't start with local funding with local property taxes, yeah. this is a housing problem. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think like. The reason why school systems can draw these lines in the first place is because our neighborhoods are already carved up by race and class, right? Like in other words, I, you know, if if you would imagine that we had mixed income, racially diverse neighborhoods all over the place, um, then no matter what lines the school systems drew, you know, they could draw triangles, they could draw rectangles, they could draw squiggly lines, they could do whatever they wanted, big or small, it would be diverse. And so it seems like the the real root issue here is 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 a housing problem. So I wanted to to ask you a little bit around um, some of the the fixes here. Um, and so there's we talk a lot about this you know the school system fixes and the different funding mechanisms you highlighted Vermont right. There's a lot of different models to kind of equitize. I don't know if equitize is a word, but equitize the the funding. It sounds good, right? It does um, sound good. Yeah. I words all the time that yeah, I've made up. There you so. go. Yeah. Housing, though, um, and I know this isn't the bread and butter of, of EdBuild, but I'm curious, um, you know, if you have any thoughts around different housing policies that you think might be promising in terms of creating more integrated uh, communities. Getting really militant about the Fair Housing Act. Um, and so there are over 100 school districts on Long Island. On, on Long, Long Island. Island. Yeah. Not um, New York, just uh, Long Island. Yes. Yeah. And, and there was a... Um, a uh, pretty aggressive lawsuit around the Fair Housing Act um, in Long Island, which was supposed to close loopholes. Mm-hmm. It hasn't done a very good job, mainly because the school district border wasn't addressed in the Fair Housing Act lawsuit, right? Yeah. And so you could start talking about access to affordable housing outside of certain redlined areas, which still exist. Yep. Um, but if if you're containing kids and you're containing wealth by these secondary arbitrary lines, then you're you're entrenching redlining. Right. 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 And so there there's a representation issue here. Um, so an average white school district um, uh, serves about fifteen hundred kids and or. You know, co- concentrated white school district. Okay. The average concentrated non-white school district serves over ten thousand. Wow. So think about the Senate. Um, a, a senator may be representing just one big metropolitan urban, you know, school mm-hmm. district, and eight times, you know, six to eight times more concentrated white school districts. So once the school board association and the association for superintendents and everyone else gets to the Capitol, they act as special interests and they're acting on behalf of the interests of largely white communities. That is just true because of how the numbers fall out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, so this isn't just an issue of um, kind of funding, right? This is an issue of the representation of the educational interests of kids living in communities. And so, so long as these borders continue to exist, it isn't just the funding inequity, it's also an inequity in terms of um, how these students are being represented in the state house. Yeah. I want to quote something from your report, which I thought was really, really powerful. Um, And here's the quote. A single fact is clear. Financially, it is far better in the United States to have the luck and lot to attend a school district that is predominantly white 
than one that enrolls a concentration of children of color. That is the inherent shame of the system we've built and one we haven't gone far enough to fix. This is not the American meritocracy that I heard when I was a kid. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, and and this is why I get angry about, like, the bootstrapping kind of approach to what we believe about America, which is gone now. Um, You know, I I came from a lower middle class um, home. My father is a police officer. Mother stayed at home with me. Okay. And, um, you know, we we lived in a modest house. um, But as my dad started to get older... Um, he moved into a for, uh, uh, assisted living, okay. and I inherited his house. Mm-hmm. And by the time that I inherited his house, that house value had doubled and tripled yep. since they had purchased the yep. house, right? Because we lived in a white community. Yeah. Um, the folks who are who are living in non-white communities may have purchased the exact same house if they got a if if they if even they got a mortgage, to. right? If they were able to, yeah. And their property didn't appreciate at nearly the same level, right? So this is where we start to understand that there is a difference between wealth and income. By merit of having having um, inherited a very uh, uh, you know a very generous Mm -hmm. um, gift of a house, uh, I'm able to put down a down payment on my own house. And get a bigger one. That's right. Right? Yeah. It's no balls. Because yeah. my dad lived in a white community where his his house appreciated mm-hmm. at a higher level. Yep. For non-white communities where there has been this long history of redlining and segregation, and what we know is that housing values don't appreciate at the same level, then how are non-white parents passing wealth down to their kids? Mm-hmm. It is disproportionately lower. Yep. Um, and so, so you know, I, I, I try to talk about um, these issues as wealth discrepancies rather than income discrepancies, mm-hmm. um, because it really is in the wealth and the housing um, that, you, that, you, you, that is really driving our increasing inequality, yeah, right? Yeah, and that the government was complicit in all of this, right? I mean, there were... You know, the redlining, those lines were drawn by the government. There was whether or not you got a mortgage uh, depended on your race for a very long period of time in this country. So the government was complicit in all of this. The point being that none of this happened by accident. Right? We intentionally drew all these borders. Yeah. And we're yeah. still doing it. We're gerrymandering people in, right. in terms of their yep. right to vote, right? Yep, yep. Um, I, I always tell people, you know, pay attention to your local, you know, in Dallas we called it an attendance boundary commission. But every now and again, you know, school districts will convene folks to like, okay, let's, let's, you know, see if we need to redraw the attendance boundaries. And there is always some clever conversation around, oh, well, you know, we're going to loop it. We're going to draw the line around this multifamily complex and this single family neighborhood is going to go here and this multifamily apartment, those kids are going to go here. And we all know what's going on. And we figured out all sorts of race neutral ways to talk about this. But this is, this is what's happening in present day America. control, right? So, so, um, uh, Go to our website. Yeah. There's another report that we did um, just before the, the race report where we talked about this wave of secessions. So since 2000, there are 100 communities who have broken off from their existing school district. Get this. In Alabama, you can have 5,000 people that you draw a line around, and if half of them agree to create their own school district, bam. There you go. You've got one. So there's no check on that. No. Literally just half of them have to say, yeah, we're seceding exactly. and that's it. Yeah. And not only that, but in Alabama, it says if you are a city, you can run your own school system or you enter into an agreement with your county. So it preferences these small cities right. where immediately you have your school district and then you decide whether or not you're going to give it up. Right, right. right. So after Brown, and, and this is where the lines of this Millican... After Brown, Jefferson County, which is the county that surrounds Birmingham, um, very infamous, Mm -hmm. uh, was under a desegregation order. Since that desegregation order was put in place, seven school districts were created within Jefferson County. Wow. 
Some of them are districts that are called over the hill. They're over a hill between Birmingham and, you know, where, where their students go to school and where, where they live. Um, and those school districts are less than 10% non-white mm-hmm. in the South. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, three, 4% poverty. I mean, these are very, very wealthy enclaves. They were able to do it because they figured out that Milliken lets them. Yep. Yep. And they've created their own segregated district. Yep. So it sounds like folks in the housing world and folks in the education world should be cooperating a little bit more than they are, right? We sort of have our silos and folks are in the education space or they're in the housing space, but these two things are just inextricably linked. And so I'm curious to your thoughts around, you know, how education advocates and housing advocates can start to, you know, cooperate a little bit more and realize that my issue is your issue and your issue is my issue and we have to cooperate on these two fronts. I mean, you know, this is a perennial problem for folks that have, uh, I would say, you know, a passion for one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing is understanding that housing and education are are about tax policy, too. And I think it's around tax policy that folks can come together at a state level um, in order to make substantial changes to the way that houses are being taxed and where that money is going. Because all of this stuff, keep in mind, is governed only by the state. So there are going to be 50 different solutions Mm -hmm. to fixing the property tax problem in schools. And so, yeah, we can all come together at a national level, and we should. We should be talking more often. But what we should really be doing is facilitating the advocates in the states that are focused on housing and education, teaching them about tax policy, helping them understand how some of this stuff is creating inequities Mm -hmm. and allowing them to come together for their own regional solution, right? I I don't know what the best tax structure is for Tennessee, and I shouldn't know, you know? Um, And so so what I really think is that national organizations need to be enabling local advocates by teaching them what's happening, by helping them understand the root of the inequity and giving them individual solutions for their state. So I want to, last question, I wanted to ask you what's on the immediate horizon for EdBuild. Can you give us, I mean, the last report you had just blew up and what's coming next? What are you going to do next? Can you give us a sneak peek at anything? I will give you a sneak peek. All right. Um, So I I, I will say this, we're going to start looking at neighbors in terms of race segregation. Interesting. So we're going to, we're going to start taking a look at how these school district borders divide races in, in, in our country and when we look at neighbors, whether or not this same funding discrepancy actually holds up. So mm-hmm. do you literally have kids who live across the street? Across the street, yep. Um, who are in either a well-resourced school or, or one that is not. And, you know, look, kids know if they're a have or a have not. They're not dumb. Yep. They know. Yep. And what's really important is that this is their first engagement with the government. Education and schools are their first engagement yeah, with true. what the government gives them, yeah, right? Yeah. So if if they know that they're not being treated equally under the state to their constitutional right to an education, what makes us think that they're going to believe that they're um, protected equally under the law? So, and and what's going to make them engage in civil society, right, or mm-hmm. civics? Yeah. So, this is an unraveling that's coming from mm-hmm. kids and their engagement in schools too. Yeah. Um, so looking at neighbors and understanding whether or not, you know, we are creating a representation issue just across the line, it's really important to us. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing, which I think is going to be very interesting, is taking a look at the voting patterns of school districts based on race and based on size. Mm. Um, And so are we seeing more, um, you know, voluntary tax increases um, when we create these smaller school districts, Mm -hmm. you know, where Mm -hmm. kids look more like each other? Um, And one of the things that we're going to include there is, this is crazy, there are 180 school districts in the United States that exist entirely within another school district, a donut hole. Um, So we're going to be taking a a look at those in particular. Coming from Dallas, there was there was one of those. It was called Highland Park ISD, Highland Park. and it was right smack in the middle. Highland Park. And if you Google Highland Park, Texas, you don't even need quotation marks. Google Highland Park, Texas, and click Google Images. 
and you will see exactly why that donut and that you know independent yep. carve out exists. Yep, yep. I remember I was it was like the first week I was there, and I was sitting down with the communications director in in Dallas ISD, and he put up a map of the district, and I asked you know stupidly. What? Why is? What's that donut in the middle? Is that like a big lake or like what? What is that? Nope, that's a separate school system, and that was a real awakening for me of how really wacky the system is. Yeah, and you can yeah. you can name them. You got Dallas, you've got Oakland, you've got Columbus, Ohio. I mean, yeah. major cities have these donut holes, and it's a use of borders to segregate kids. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I can say borders, but right. if your listeners want a fun drinking game, they should go back to the beginning of this podcast and take a drink every time I said border. Border, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, when I do the intro for the podcast, I'll say that on the front end so they can prepare awesome. for it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. So where can folks go to learn more about Edbill? Um, so our website, edbuild.org, okay. um, uh, we've got lots of really great stuff out there. Um, and one of the things that I would say is that there's a box on the side of our landing page that says how schools are funded. Click on that. We have a database that explains, um, in hopefully user-friendly terms, how every state is funding different components of schools. Okay. Um, so if you want to know how many states are giving a preference um, or giving more money to high-poverty school districts, you can take a look at the United States map and get a, a sense of that, mm-hmm. or English language learners or whatever. And then you can click into um, your particular state and get lots oh, more okay. information. Yeah. Um, so, so really starting by understanding how the state funding is working in individual states um, is, is the best way to engage in, with EdBuild. Um, but listen, my email address is Rebecca at edbuild.org, and I answer every email. So Cool. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Well, this is, again, for, the, for our listeners, I would really urge you to check out this report and check out all of the stuff that, that EdBuild does. They're doing incredible work uh, raising awareness about a problem that uh, is, is really pernicious and, and one of the most grave inequities that we see in American society. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank um, you for the work you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and of thank course. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come together, right? That's right. That's right. There yes, we go. there you go. And we wrapped it up very well. So thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> Appreciate Good. you being here. It was great being here.